After marking hymn number 226 that we'll use at the close of the lesson this morning, might we be reminded of some of the marvelous statements of Scripture that challenge us and push us forward and onward each and every day? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. As we each desire day by day to let the words of our mouth and everything on which we think to be pleasing, honorable, and approving by the nature of God, we should certainly live a life that would be great glory and would in fact direct all the homage to God that certainly we, you and I would be able to do. As we come together to this part of our service this morning, you might have noticed in the bulletin as well as in the wall to my left that the title of our lesson this morning has to do with just one word, and that is repentance. I thought it would be an interesting subject for us to devote some consideration to asking some rather moving questions relative to repentance. We use that word rather frequently, but perhaps we are guilty of not devoting to it the consideration it rightly deserves, given the oftenness with which it occurs in the Holy Scriptures. For example, as you'll notice on that screen again, some of the things concerning the nature of God's will. Many things can be said about some of the statements to be found in the Bible. Unfortunately, many of the things asserted seem to have caused great misunderstanding and seem to have caused misinterpretation by many. Sadly enough, some of the simplest matters in all the book of God have found, in fact, a degree of misunderstanding in the lives of some. In fact, when one discusses the justice, the grace, the love, and the mercy of God, as grand as those subjects are, there are passages that can be taken in a way different from what God intended and used to teach things that, in fact, co contradict other verses in the book of God. Even the plan of salvation that is so fundamental to salvation, of course, there are those who twist it and turn it and, in fact, do great injustice to it. And perhaps that leads us to consider the matter of repentance this morning. For as we shall discover, it is a necessary ingredient to God's presented plan of salvation. Hence, that makes itself repentance a vital matter to understand and to also appreciate in all of its fullness. With those kinds of ideas at least set in our mind, what might we say about repentance? Is it important? If so, how important is it? What is involved in repentance? Is it the same, let's say, as other emotions that can be described? Is repentance just another word used to describe some emotions that the human being can, can experience? That becomes a vital matter, doesn't it? Because, again, we've already learned that it appears that repentance is very important, and we shall use that as the first element of our lesson this morning, attempting to appreciate just how important is it. Once that's identified... I would suggest we move through the lesson in the following way. First, the importance of repentance. Secondly, what's the definition of repentance? And thirdly, what can be said about what repentance involves? If we have devoted our attention to using God's book to help us answer those questions, I'm convinced we each will have a better understanding of repentance, a better comprehension of that subject when the time comes for the close of the lesson this morning. It is with those ideas in mind, I would direct your attention to the opening matter. That is to say, what about the importance of this matter known as repentance? First of all, that Greek word, repentance, occurs frequently in the New Testament. But let's notice in English first. 
that in the English translation, and I particularly use the King James for to determine some numbers here at the outset of the lesson, you and I will discover that the word repent, or some form of it, occurs 112 times in the 27 New Testament books. As one thinks about that usage of repentance, the character of its presentation, that seems to suggest some importance. Notice that the Greek word, which I have also written for your consideration, its pronunciation is a bit interesting. Metanoio, you'll notice it occurs some 35 times in the New Testament. 35 occurrences. That may not seem as if it is a great number, but we shall find the context in which it appears are vastly significant. For example, I've listed a few verses for your study. If you'd like to take note of a few of them and perhaps revisit them when opportunity presents itself, I'll simply quote or at least make note of a few of them. John the Immerser, near the outset of his ministry as the forerunner of the Christ, said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, verse number 2. On that occasion, it was John the Baptist who noticed by commandment said, Repent ye. He left no room for an option concerning that matter. One chapter later, the very Son of God, Jesus the Christ, in Matthew 4, 17, in identical language, said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice in those early days, and this was prior to the Lord's crucifixion, of course, prior to His ascension to glory, nonetheless for those interested in the understanding of what it meant to come to God, repentance was a vital issue related to it. In addition to those things, in Luke 13, verses 3 and verse 5, on this occasion, during the very heart and centrality of the Lord's personal ministry, He said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. On that occasion, to those who were His auditors, the Lord, in rather clear-cut language, repeated it twice, so that the point could not be misunderstood. Nay, but except you repent you shall all likewise perish. You and I might, in our language today, understand that the Lord said, unless you repent, you will perish. That places a rather critical and not un misunderstandable thrust on the matter of repentance, doesn't it? If you don't repent, you will perish. In addition to those, would you also note with me in, Acts, in, in Luke 15, verse number 7, that on that instance when Jesus, again, relating some of the more beautiful parables that we re recollect from that chapter, it mentions not only the parable, of course, of the lost son, but also that of the lost coin and that of the lost sheep. It was in the heart of those early discussions that Jesus said, there is more rejoicing, joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance. Notice twice repentance was mentioned. And there's great joy and rejoicing in heaven over one who needs to repent than over ninety and nine who are in fact justified, sanctified, and are not at that point in need of it. Later we find in the book of Acts, on that day of Pentecost, when there were those Jews gathered to celebrate the feast of Pentecost, and not many days prior the Son of God had been crucified and put to death. We find on that occasion that being baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up first, and beginning in verse 14, he proclaimed to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when he arrived at the close of the lesson, 
in verse 37, the text says they were pricked in their heart and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were understanding of the fact that in the lesson that Peter had just delivered, he had preached the identical nature of the fact Jesus is the Son of God, and you by wicked hands put Him to death. Furthermore, he said, but the grave couldn't hold Him. Verses 22 to 24 says, Up from the grave He arose by the power of God, and not only that, He ascended to the Father, and He now reigns over spiritual Israel. As they were pricked in their heart relative to what they had done, they, they said, What shall we do? Peter responded with these words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Notice that repentance was the first element of what he asserted. You need to repent. We find, in fact, that matter of repentance mentioned over and over again. In fact, to highlight the last verse I listed there at the outset, if we turn to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, we recollect that in chapters 2 and 3, there were seven brief letters written to the seven churches of Asia. Those congregations in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And to each of them, the Lord said, I know your works. However, to about six out of the seven, He said, unless you repent, something's going to happen. To one congregation it was, I'll remove your candlestick. To another, your name will be blotted out. To another, you in fact will be in a miserable, wretched state. But in every instance when needed, the Lord made commandment of repentance. Perhaps it would be in order thus to notice. Repentance, it seems, is vastly important. All these texts we have listed often presented as a commandment. And furthermore, I have asked you to note with me the importance seen in some other verses that I have listed just beneath it. If it's the case, we might have missed the point. In some of these that we have just noted, listen to some of the things asserted in this second listing. In Mark 6, verse 12, on the occasion again of the Lord's ministry, He gave His apostles commandment, and when He sent them out on that limited commission, they were to preach that men should repent. Repentance was a necessary part of the language and of the lessons that they presented. We find furthermore in Acts 3, verse number 19, the second sermon recorded in the New Testament, that second gospel lesson. Here, same preacher, it was Peter. Here on Solomon's porch, we well remember, he said, Repent ye and be converted. Doesn't that sound amazingly similar to Acts 2.38? There it was, Repent and be baptized, and now it's repent and be converted. Why, Peter? That your sins may be blotted out when the days of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. It is the case that whether it was that opening lesson on Pentecost or this second one at Solomon's porch still in Jerusalem, repentance was required. We can't misunderstand then, can we, the significance and the importance of repentance. In the 17th chapter of Acts, perhaps this is the text to which your mind has raced already. When Paul stood in great majesty and power in the intelligentsia of Athens, it was on that instance he said, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. At that point might we ask, who is left out? He said, all men everywhere. 
you and I thus are not in a position to misunderstand the thoroughness and the essentiality of repentance. All men everywhere are required by God to repent in order to be pleasing unto Him. We notice in Matthew 11 verse 20 that on that occasion there were those communities in which Jesus had wrought and performed miracles and yet they still didn't believe and this interesting statement is made. The Lord began to upbraid them because they repented not. They had seen His miracles. Those ought to have led them to appreciate Him as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. It ought to have led them to understand that the message He preached was from heaven. And yet the text says they repented not and the Lord began to upbraid them. That word upbraid means to rebuke to chastise. It's not a compliment. He began to get on to them, if you will, because they did not repent. In light of all those passages and texts, might we conclude this opening portion of our lesson by reminding ourselves of how important repentance is. We can't be saved without it. It was necessary on Pentecost in the days that followed. It was necessary under the preaching of John the Baptist. It was necessary, in fact, when Paul delivered that great lesson to Athens in Acts the 17th chapter. It is in light of those points that we close that slide with that following statement. May we again appreciate the importance and the necessity of repentance in order to be acceptable unto God. One then might ask the question, if repentance is so important... And if it is so required by God, I'd like to be clearer as to what it means to repent. May you and I define it. Can we put some meat, if you will, on the discussion of what it means to repent? I've listed some thoughts on this slide, and might we give them some serious consideration to help ourselves better understand what it means to repent? First of all, let's return to that Greek word metanoio and ask, what does that Greek word mean? I have used two different lexicons in an attempt to help us appreciate it. The first one is the rather well-noted Freiburg lexicon. It defines repentance in the following language. That Greek word metanoio means later knowledge. It means subsequent correction, both religiously and morally, defined as follows. As a change of mind leading to a change of behavior. So might we notice and remember perhaps a change of mind that produces or generates or leads to a change in behavior. But if that isn't sufficient, let's give some thought to the Thayer lexicon. Some are perhaps more familiar with the, the, the Greek lexicon by, by J.H. Thayer, Dr. Thayer from, from many years ago. I have written it in its entirety and it's a bit lengthy. But I think it worthy of our attention. So if you'd like to follow along, certainly it's the second bullet. But let me read Thayer's version of what the word metanoio means. The change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and heartily amendment the tokens and effects of which are good deeds. Now that's a somewhat lengthier statement, but notice again some key words in it. One who has begun to abhor the deed, misdeeds and errors, that is a recognition of sin, an understanding of the abhorrence and the terribleness of it, 
notice that it goes on to say, has made a determination for a better course in life. That there is a different way that is pronounced with great blessing that's not those misdeeds and errors. This better course of life manifests itself with hearty amendment, with the tokens and effects of good deeds. Again, might we notice how that Freiburg stated it somewhat more succinctly or somewhat more compactly? A change of mind that results in a change in action or a change in behavior. Perhaps it would be interesting for us to allow the Word of God to define it if possible. There is a text in Matthew 21, and I would invite your attention to that passage for perhaps that's the closest definition that you and I find in the sacred scriptures as to the subject of repentance. Since it is a brief, I wish us to merely read all of it. In Matthew 21, verses 28 through 31, we have the following teaching, and this is from the mouth of the Savior himself. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he said to the first, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him the first, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. In light of what the Lord described concerning that father and his two sons, notice again, he came to one of the sons and said, Son, go today into my vineyard. The son said, I will not. The son flatly refused to do at first what the father had commanded. He said, I will not. But, verse 29 goes on to say, afterward, he repented and went. There's that word, repented. What then in this context did repentance involve? What did it mean? What did it accomplish? Well, notice the boy's response first was a bad thing. He disobeyed his father. He rebelled against the father's commandment. He refused to submit to the authority of the father. He said, I will not. However, the text says afterward he repented. What did the repentance involve? It says he went. He then did the Father's bidding by proceeding to the vineyard. Though at first he had rebelled, in the repentance he succumbed to the authority of the Father and proceeded to do that which the Father had bade him to do. On that occasion, notice repentance involved a change of mind. Though at first the Son had said, I will not, notice he afterward went. So he changed his mind. Furthermore, at first, he did not go to the vineyard, despite the Father's command. In his repentance, that not only changed his mind to the point he said, well, I'll think about going, I'll give it some thought day after tomorrow. It says he went. He then did, proceeding to the vineyard, that which the Father had commanded. A change of mind that resulted in a change in action, a change in behavior. Perhaps again, that notice, that definition brings us to appreciate what repentance involves. It is with that we close that screen by summarizing what we have learned and what we have asserted. That repentance is a change of mind that manifests itself in both sorrow and a change in behavior, a change in conduct, if you will. 
with this definition of repentance set before us, we can then put it back into those passages we earlier learned and now understand what those folks did when they repented. Before we look more carefully at the fullness of that idea, let's address one objection, one potential difficulty and confusion that exists in the mind of some. It has to do with what repentance involves. If it is the case, it's this change of mind that produces or results in a change of action. Let's make certain to set before ourselves one thing then that can cause a great problem in the mind of some so that you and I will not stumble into that thinking. The problem to which we refer has to do with the matter of sorrowfulness. Sorrowfulness. If I'm sorry for something, for something that I have done, or something that I have not done, is that equal to saying that I am repentant of it? Is sorrow and repentance the same thing? That's the confusing point that some have wondered about over the decades and over the years. Is sorrowfulness for something and repentance over something equal to each other? All we can do is allow God to more fully identify that thought and to explain it to us. And it is on the course of this screen that I ask us to look again at that passage read earlier today. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, we have these two concepts in the same verse. Let's ask, did the Holy Spirit equate them? Did the Holy Spirit affirm that being sorry for something and repenting of it is the same thing? Paul wrote, for godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Let's note again what the inspired apostle affirmed. Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. It is interesting that as you perhaps heard the earlier reading of that text, as Brother Vestal read that to us, I think his translation used the word, godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation. The two are different. Godly sorrow works unto or produces it, but they are not one and the same. The inspired apostle noted a distinction. Godly sorrow works toward or seeks to produce repentance, but notice again the difference. I've tried to list a few of the features for your consideration. Might we begin it with thinking along this line? Have you ever known of someone who perhaps was caught doing something and they were sorrowful that they were caught? Maybe they were greatly agitated and bothered that they were caught in the act of it, but you couldn't help but believe, especially given their behavior in days that followed, that they really were never greatly sorrowful for the fact of what they had done. They were only sorrowful that they got caught. Notice, sorrow and repentance then are not the same thing in that context. As the verse closes, what does the sorrow of the world generate? He says the sorrow of the world produces death. Genuine repentance, you see, is not the same as just being sorry for something. If you and I are repentant, we not only are sorrowful over the sin we've committed, it agitates us greatly because it is an affront to the majesty of God. It is a violation of His will. It's a transgression of the authority of His covenant. That should, of course, bother us terribly. And we should, of course, be greatly sorrowful for that. But that sorrow must produce repentance unto salvation. 
it is interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't say that sorrow works salvation. It's sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation. Again, he helps us see how important, doesn't he, that repentance is. Inasmuch as it leads to salvation, notice again, godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. That helps us to appreciate one more thought. This godly sorrow, notice how he contrasts that to the sorrow of the world. If we are in a godly sorrowful fashion, that means we're sorry for something in the way God would have us to be sorry for it. Again, we have perhaps sinned, and as we understand that sin, it is a violation of His will. We have perhaps hurt others, true, but first and foremost, we have violated the great will of God. It is that thought that prompts our repentance. Certainly it leads us to be sorrowful for that which we've done, but it prompts our change of mind that produces that change of action. We make a concerted effort in mind to think not of doing that again. I don't want to be guilty of that anymore. I don't want to be coming into the same element of life as I have been. That change of action is the result of that change in mind, and all of that is involved in repentance. As repentance is described in language like that, and as we've learned earlier that Peter taught that, Paul taught that, the Lord taught that, even John the Baptist asserted that, it might be helpful to revisit John the Baptist preaching in Luke chapter 3 and ask when he taught repentance, what was that repentance? Is it like the repentance we've studied? If you wish to look at Luke 3 verses 7 to 14, without reading the fullness of that passage, we might remember that there John taught with great boldness and courageousness as these Pharisees, Sadducees, and others came to the Jordan and heard him preach, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath bewitched you to flee from the wrath to come? Boy, John was a bold preacher, wasn't he, to in fact use language as straightforward as that. But in the verses that follow, we might well ask, some of those gathered said, What shall we do? Asking, What must we then do to bring about what you've commanded? Notice he told them to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. And when they said, what does that mean? He said, by explanation, to those that were soldiers, to those that were merchantmen, to those that had other walks in life, he told them specific things that would manifest their repentance. To that person who had two coats, he said, you give your, your brother, you give that person one of them. To that person who was a, a publican, he said, you exact no more than what's right. So that publican or that person who was, at least in days past, guilty of taking more by way of taxes than he ought to have taken, your behavior ought now to be different. Your behavior ought to be such that you do not exact that which is more than what would be appropriate and right. Luke's version of that, as well as Matthew's version, also presents various questions that they ask and the answers that John presented. Notice again we see a change of mind that produced a change in action. Perhaps one final thought might be the teaching of Paul in Acts 26. On this occasion, when that Apostle Paul, by that point laid in the book of Acts, and greatly involved in that scene that would ultimately lead him, to stand before the Caesar. 
It was on that occasion that Paul also had some interesting things to say about repentance. I'd invite your attention to that one verse with me. Acts 26, verse number 20. If we begin reading in verse 19, it says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Isn't it interesting that Paul thus said to Agrippa, I have preached to the Gentiles, I've preached everywhere I've been, that men ought to repent and do those works meet for repentance. So notice that the change in life, that conduct, that behavior, afterward was to be a manifestation of that changing to God by virtue of that change in mind. As we think about repentance in that regard and in that way, doesn't that bring us back to the plan of salvation? Which we noticed many times at the outset of the lesson. On Pentecost, when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Might we notice there that repentance preceded baptism. A person was to repent and only then to be baptized. We notice in Acts 3.19, again, on the occasion of Solomon's porch, Peter again said, Repent and be converted. Again, notice that the repentance was an essential part of that conversion unto God. What about God's plan of salvation? I, as a lowly sinner, one who is undeserving of the blood of the Master, one who, in fact, is undeserving of the greatness of God's gift for me. I understand the heinousness of my sin. I come to realize it's shame, how that even how well Jeremiah may be stated in the days long ago. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even unto this day, have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. To quote Jeremiah 3.25, the shamefulness, the ugliness, the terribleness of sin. When I come to realize that, and the, what the Lord has done for you and for me, we should with excitement and great haste turn aside in mind, not wishing to live that kind of life anymore. For that's a life of ruin, destruction, and doom. It is a life that is far removed from the greatness of the potential and blessing of God. We should in mind desire to turn from it, that, of course, will mean that in our life there will be some changes. I won't go to those places before that I went that were dens of iniquity. We'll not infrequent those places anymore. We'll strive not to have those thoughts of licentiousness or lewdness or wickedness that perhaps we once had. Furthermore, we'll perhaps try to change greatly our language. If our language has been wicked and vile and profane, we, because of our repentance... And in our understanding that that does not please God, we'll try to change that language. We'll not use that same tone of voice or those same words that we've used before. Repentance is a change of mind that produces a change in action. Whether that action is our language, whether it is the places we go, the places we frequent, whether it is the way in which we strive to interact with others in terms of being to them a person of, an, of a godly example, those things will change. It is in matters like that that we come near the close of that verse and see again it's a part of God's plan of salvation. 
As we turn away from sin, we must turn to God. And in that act of repentance, we begin that marvelous transformation. It's culminated, of course, when we bury that old man of sin. Because we've turned away from that style of life, that man of sin is now dead. We bury it in baptism, as we've been studying on Wednesday evenings. With those thoughts in mind, perhaps the only thing that remains would be to ask the following question. What then do we do with certain passages that indicate that God has repented? And there are many of them in the Old Testament that lead us to see that for one reason or another in certain passages, God is said to have repented. Perhaps, oddly enough, that will be another great element in our understanding of repentance, and we'll use that to close our lesson this morning. As you look at some of those passages that are found in the Old Testament, the first thing that we must resoundingly understand is that God is not guilty of sin. He has never been, nor will He ever be. He, in fact, is said in Titus 1, verse 2, He cannot lie. In James 1, verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. You see, it's an impossibility for God because of His holiness, His infinite perfectness, he is said to have eyes that are such that they do not behold iniquity in the sense of participating in it, Habakkuk 1.13. It is in that matter, thus, we can conclude that when it says that God has repented, it does not mean that He committed some sin as in, and is thus in need of being repentant of it. The word in the Old Testament must in those cases being, be used in a somewhat different way. I would ask you, though, to notice what we've learned earlier, a change of mind that results in a change of action. Let's see, in fact, in regard to one of the passages. It is the Jeremiah 18 text that seems, explains it so very aptly. Let's look at Jeremiah 18. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. And with that, we'll draw our lesson to its conclusion as we look at the repentance of God. Beginning in verse number 7, the text reads, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom, to build and to plant it? If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. That explains it very powerfully, doesn't it? God says, if this nation who in their wickedness and in their ungodliness is such that I have made determination that they will in fact be destroyed, I'll root them up and plant and, and remove them. He says, if they repent, if in fact they turn to do that which is good, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do against them. That is to say, their destruction, I will postpone it. I will set it aside and in fact bless them and allow them to continue. Notice, even with respect to God, it was a change of mind that resulted in a change in God's action toward them. Their repentance would save them. But by the same token, to that nation who was doing that which was right, he said, if they start doing that which was evil, I will repent me of the good that I thought I would benefit them with. 
I will withhold those blessings. Isn't that a somewhat sobering reflection to each of us? You see, God responds to us by way of whether or not we repent with respect to Him. If we won't re re repent of the evil in our life, He will withhold from us the greatness of all those spiritual blessings He wishes to pour upon us. The question then comes to you and me this morning. What about repentance? Do you and I need to genuinely repent? We've seen the answer to be yes. We can't be saved without it. Is repentance the same as just being sorry for the fact we've sinned? No, it's not. Repentance is that change of mind that produces, results in a change in the actions of our lives. And so this morning, the question in a much better way comes, are you in need of repentance this morning? Has your life perhaps been such that you've never obeyed the Lord initially? Then you have yet to, in fact, be enrolled in the marvelous body of Christ. Notice repentance is required. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God and repent of your sins. You need to confess Jesus as the Son of God and to be baptized. If we could assist you in that way today, or to assist you in coming back to being faithful unto God, if you have wandered away again into sin, you need to repent. Peter told that gentleman named Simon in Acts the 8th chapter, after this one who had already been baptized and again fell again into sin, Peter said, Repent. He needed to come to understand the error of what course of life he had begun to pursue and to change his conduct. Today, if you need to change your conduct in that way, if you need to repent, and if we could be of assistance in that way, in a public way, whether leading to baptism or to pray on your behalf, we'd be happy to assist in what way we can while together we stand and while we sing.